In 1981, a 35-year-old man was arrested for killing Anna Bachmeyer, a bubbly seven-year-old who went missing on the way to a friend's house. Though the killer confessed, he went to trial, and what happened at his trial made international news and led to 40 years of debate. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. This is normally my week off, seeing as Monday was the fifth Monday of the month. I usually don't release on those weeks. It just gives me a little bit of a built-in break throughout the year. But then Lena recommended this case to me, and it's absolutely fascinating, but it is on the shorter side. So it was perfect for just a general release bonus episode. I'm also obviously terrible about taking time off. I want to thank Lena for suggesting this one because I've never heard of it and it really captured my interest. Fortunately, it made international news, so I had plenty of English language sources to use. This case took place in the German city of Lübeck, which is a port city on the Baltic Sea. We are talking the early 1980s, so at the time, Lübeck was in West Germany, right on the border with East Germany. Mariana Bachmeier grew up near Hanover with her parents until they split up, in part due to her father's alcoholism. Her mother, who Mariana described as cold, remarried to an even colder stepfather. Either Mariana's father or stepfather was a former Nazi soldier. It's been reported both ways, and it honestly could have been either or maybe even both based on their ages. Mariana's family was very religious and strict, so when she became pregnant at 16, her stepfather kicked her out. When she gave birth in 1967 at the age of 17, Mariana decided to place the baby up for adoption. She became pregnant again soon after, and while pregnant, she was raped by a neighbor. Just 18 years old, traumatized, and on her own, Mariana decided to relinquish custody of this baby as well. It was in 1973, when Mariana was 23 years old, that she had her third baby, a daughter she named Anna. She was older now and better able to care for a baby, so she retained custody. She also decided that Anna was going to be an only child. Mariana opted for sterilization after her birth. In 1980, Anna was seven years old, and she and Mariana lived in an apartment in Lubeck with Mariana's boyfriend. Mariana had married after Anna was born, but not to the baby's father, but to a friend of hers from Pakistan. This is what we call a green card marriage here in the U.S. She was just helping him get a residence permit. They divorced as soon as they could and both moved on with their lives. Now, Mariana had experienced a childhood no one should. 
there was physical, emotional, and sexual abuse in her childhood, and then she experienced a violent rape as a teenager. She was thrown out at 17 when she needed her family the most, and she struggled to build a life for herself. But she had done it. She was working a full-time job at a pub. Most of the sources say that she ran the bar. Some say that she owned it. But she was definitely a vital key to running this pub. And she was raising her daughter. And Anna was a happy and outgoing little girl with a mind of her own. On the morning of Monday, May 5th, 1980, little Anna and Mariana got into an argument before Anna left for school. Angry, Anna stormed out and headed not in the direction of school, but towards a friend's house. On the way there, she saw one of her neighbors, 35-year-old Klaus Grabowski. Klaus invited Anna in to play with his cats. When Anna didn't make it to school, to her friend's house, and didn't come home, the police became involved quickly. Klaus's fiance, who lived with him, called the police that very night and told them that Klaus had something to do with Anna's disappearance. The details aren't really fleshed out here, but Klaus did eventually confess. He said that he had Anna into his apartment where he hugged her or touched her in a non-sexual way. Anna then demanded that Klaus pay her five marks, which would be about two and a half dollars, or she would tell her mother that Klaus molested her. Klaus told the police that he was afraid to go back to jail, so he held Anna in his apartment while he figured out what to do. He decided he had no other choice So he grabbed a pair of his fiancé's pantyhose and strangled Anna. He then put her little body into a cardboard box and buried it in a shallow grave by the canal. Klaus's story checked out as far as him murdering Anna, but the investigators did not believe that this little seven-year-old girl had tried to extort him for no reason. That's ridiculous. They fully believed Klaus had either molested her or tried to molest her, and she fought back, screamed, or threatened to tell her mother what happened. The idea that she demanded money for silence, a seven-year-old, is ludicrous. And about Klaus not wanting to go back to jail, that does check out, even if his story was true, and Anna threatened to lie about him, he knew no one would believe him because he had previous convictions for assaulting children. In 1971 or 72, Klaus was convicted of molesting a six-year-old girl, and one UPI article said he attempted to strangle her. For this, he was given one year's probation. Less than two years after that, Klaus was arrested for molesting two children, a boy and a girl, both nine years old. He was found guilty and sentenced to a year in a psychiatric hospital for treatment. 
1976, Klaus underwent a voluntary castration in an attempt to curb his sexual drive. Not a chemical castration, but a physical and irreversible one. However, by 1978, Klaus was free and he met his fiancée. He went to a urologist and explained his castration. He told the doctor that he wanted hormone replacement therapy so he and his new girlfriend could have a normal sex life. He had to obtain court approval for this, which he got, though there is some indication that the doctor didn't actually know why Klaus had undergone the castration in the first place. Klaus told him it was after a conviction for exhibitionism, and apparently the court didn't inform the urologist that it was actually for pedophilia. So Klaus was a convicted pedophile who was getting hormone therapy to restore his sex drive. So he knew no one would believe him that he didn't molest Anna if she accused him. And Klaus was right. We are 40 years later and I still don't believe him. So Klaus's trial began in March 1981, 10 months after Anna's murder. The prosecutors couldn't prove that Anna had been molested, so they focused their case on the murder, which, let's be honest, was the more serious crime. Klaus molested three children already, having attempted to strangle one of them, and he had spent a grand total of one year in custody at a hospital. The murder charge was what was going to put him away. 31-year-old Mariana showed up for the third day of trial on March 6, 1981. She was in her seat before Klaus had been brought into the courtroom. At 10 a.m., Klaus and his attorney came in as the judge was about to start the testimony. As soon as Klaus sat down, Mariana stood up, pulled a 22 caliber Beretta from her purse, and fired eight times at Klaus's back. She hit him six of those times. When she finished shooting, Mariana threw the gun on the ground and waited for the courtroom guards to take her into custody. The man who was with her, who I believe was her boyfriend, said, she's really done it. Everyone else ran from the courtroom, including a group of 14- and 15-year-old students who were there for a civics class field trip. While I will question bringing 14- and 15-year-olds to see a trial about a child murder, I'm sure no one thought they would actually see a killing right in front of them. Shortly after they had Mariana in custody, she said that she wanted to shoot Klaus in the face, but didn't have the chance. And then she said she hoped he was dead. And he was. Klaus Grabowski died within minutes of hitting the courtroom floor. 
Due to West Germany's already strict gun laws, security checks in the courthouse weren't regularly done unless there was some indication there would be trouble. But Mariana had sat through two days of the trial calm and stoic. She didn't have any emotional outbursts or give any indication that she was a threat to anyone. Mariana was charged with murder and held without bond. Reactions around the world were mixed. A lot of people, as you can imagine, were saying things like, I would have shot him too. One man said he wouldn't have shot Klaus. He would have cut him up into little pieces. Some of her friends fundraised to finance her defense, and within a week, they had gotten 50,000 marks. They wanted to help Mariana avoid spending decades in prison, and those who felt she was justified were opening their wallets. Others argued that they can't just let someone have a vigilante pass because we don't like the person she killed. That was going to send the wrong message. However, killing the man who killed your child seemed like the exact message a lot of people wanted to send. But Mariana's defense was not going to justify what she did by advocating for vigilante justice. They were going to argue extreme emotional distress. On the morning of the shooting, Mariana visited Anna's grave before she went to court. Then when she arrived at the courthouse, she overheard Klaus and his attorney talking about him making a statement in court that day. When Mariana took her seat, all she could think about was Klaus standing up and accusing her innocent daughter of trying to blackmail him, as though her murder was because of her actions and not his. So when she saw the back of Klaus in court, and thought about what he was going to say, she couldn't think rationally. She said she had a vision of Anna and heard her scream before she pulled the trigger. During one of the examinations of Mariana leading up to the trial, she was asked to provide a handwriting sample for analysis. This type of psychological analysis of someone's handwriting is called graphology, and some consider it to be quackery, but they were using it nonetheless. Asked to write whatever she wanted, Mariana wrote, I did it for you, Anna, and followed it by seven hearts, one for every year she had been alive. Proving that Mariana was emotionally distressed or had a mental disturbance would not be the hard part here. The biggest hurdle the defense had was the gun. Mariana was so overcome with emotion in that moment. Okay. And she just so happened to have a gun on her? A gun she bought a week before the trial? That sounds premeditated. 
Mariana initially said in an interview that she bought the gun for protection. Mariana did a lot of interviews before her trial, which is usually not advisable, but she had sold her life story to Stern magazine and used the money to help fund her defense. In these interviews, she talked about how public opinion was not very kind towards her in the lead-up to Klaus's trial. It was a lot like what we saw in the Corinne Erstad case, where her parenting was being put under scrutiny. Mariana said it went so far that she was getting threats. But when her trial came around, her defense argued that she had actually bought the gun because she planned on taking her own life, and she kept it with her just as a way to feel a little bit safer. Mariana's case would take 18 months to go to trial. She spent most of that time locked up, but she had been released at some point shortly before the trial due to health reasons. The trial finally began on November 2nd, 1982. The courtroom was open for about eight minutes on the first day, in which time 300 people tried to get into the 200-seat room. The only reason they even had that many seats was that they moved the trial to a state building. They didn't want to hold Mariana's trial literally at the scene of the crime, which was the courthouse. The judge had to close the court while they figured out which journalists and which spectators would get a seat. But this was just day one of an incredibly long trial. In all, it took four months from the opening to the verdict and sentencing. The prosecution initially argued that this was a case of murder and that Mariana had clearly planned it in advance and she had carried it out sneakily, which is an interesting concept in German law. The German word for this is Heimtikush, which means insidious, and it is in the murder statute from 1941 Nazi Germany. It basically says that a murderer is someone who uses someone's defenselessness in killing them. An example that is often given and that I have taken from a 2014 BBC article is that of an abusive spouse. If an abusive spouse kills their partner during a beating, it can be argued it was manslaughter since the partner could have seen it coming. But if the abused party kills their abuser while the abuser is sleeping, it's more likely to be charged as murder because it was a sneaky way to kill someone. The concept is rooted in the Nazi view that some people are weak-minded. It's less of a crime for a stronger person to kill a weaker person who should have seen their murder as a possibility and done something to stop it. It could be characterized and has been, by some people, as a legalized victim-blaming. 
at the end of World War II, West Germany did retain this law, but East Germany had the murder versus manslaughter law more in line with what we see in the U.S., where intent is the distinction. When Germany unified, the West German definition became the law, and it was a very controversial one. The last article I've seen in English tackling this issue was in 2015, when there was talk that there were vows to change it. In the case we're talking about today, Klaus was about as unsuspecting as they come because he was in a courtroom with his back to Mariana. The prosecution found no room for this to be a case of manslaughter because she killed him while he was completely defenseless. The prosecution did call witnesses to frame this as Mariana having premeditated the crime. Most importantly, the judge who was at the courthouse and witnessed the shooting testified. He said that immediately after the shooting, Mariana said that she had wanted to kill him, indicating that she thought about it before she did it and it was a choice she made. But the only person who could know what was in Mariana's mind was Mariana. She took the stand and told about seeing Anna in the courtroom and feeling like she was in a dream when the shooting happened. She also talked about her past. Mariana told the court how she was sexually molested at nine years old for the first time, and that it went on for years. Her stepfather was physically abusive, and her parents, as a whole unit, were all emotionally abusive. She talked about the pregnancies, the rape, and placing her children up for adoption, all traumas that influenced her mindset when confronted with the killer of her daughter, Anna. The defense also pushed off some of the blame onto the judiciary, who allowed Klaus to receive testosterone to renew his sex drive. They knew what he was capable of, and had they denied him this testosterone, he wouldn't have kidnapped Anna with the intention of molesting her. She wouldn't have been killed giving Mariana no reason to then kill Klaus. But for the actions of the authorities, Klaus and Anna would still be alive. And the defense was not the only ones blaming the authorities. As I'm sure you can imagine, this did not play well in the press. There was a lot of blaming of the authorities. Towards the end of the trial, the prosecution ended up actually siding with the defense due to the extenuating circumstances. They were no longer seeking a murder conviction. They asked that Mariana be found guilty for manslaughter, not murder, and receive a sentence of eight years. 
I thought this was an interesting twist because it seems like this was a true fact-finding trial versus an adversarial situation where winning the case is the only goal. The prosecution here was willing to concede manslaughter when that is what the facts supported. In Germany, there is not a jury system like we have here in the U.S. There are usually one or more judges deciding the case. In Mariana's case, it was a panel of three judges and two lay people. It took them 28 days to decide a verdict and a sentence. On March 2nd, 1983, exactly four months since the first day of the trial, they found Mariana guilty of manslaughter and unlawful possession of a firearm and sentenced her to six years. The lead judge said that there was no doubt that Klaus had killed Anna and that Anna's murder was due to mistakes by legal authorities. That's why they gave the fairly mild punishment of just six years. Because of how much time Mariana had spent in pretrial detention, she only served an additional two years before she was eligible for parole. She was released in June 1985 with two years and 10 months left of her sentence. She spent that on probation. Mariana married upon her release from prison, and when her probation was up, she and her husband moved to Nigeria, where her husband taught at a German school. Then in 1990, they divorced, and Mariana moved to Palermo, Sicily, where she became a hospice worker. In 1996, Mariana was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She returned to Germany and died on September 17, 1996, at only 46 years of age. She was buried next to Anna in Lübeck. The debate over what Mariana did continued well after her release and after her death. About 10 years after the killing, Mariana admitted in an interview that the shooting wasn't quite the moment of extreme distress they made it out to be at the trial. She killed Klaus only after having thought it over. After Mariana's death, a friend told a story that, if true, takes all doubt away. She said Mariana had spent the days leading up to Klaus Grabowski's trial in the basement of the bar where she worked, practicing her aim with the gun. ¶¶ 